Good morning. The scripture reading for today comes from Luke 1, verses 46 to 55, which can be found on page 6 in your bulletins. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Buenos días. La lectura esta mañana viene de Lucas capítulo 1, versículos 46 al 55. Entonces dijo María, mi alma glorifica al Señor y mi espíritu se regocija en Dios mi Salvador, porque se ha dignado fijarse en su humilde sierva. Desde ahora me llamarán dichosa todas las generaciones, porque el Poderoso ha hecho grandes cosas por mí. Santo es su nombre, de generación en generación se extiende su misericordia a todos los que le temen. Hizo proezas con su brazo, desbarató las intrigas de los soberbios. De sus tronos derrocó a los poderosos, mientras que ha exaltado a los humildes. A los hambrientos los colmó de bienes, y a los ricos los despidió con las manos vacías. Acudió en ayuda a su siervo Israel, y cumpliendo su promesa a nuestros padres, mostró su misericordia a Abraham y a su descendencia para siempre. Good morning, family. Glad to be with you all. I bring you greetings. We're going to back this up a little bit. Some of y'all already know. <laughs> I bring you greetings from Grace Mosaic, your sister congregation over the way in Northeast. Uh, Duke and I have a yearly running joke that we have a gentleman's agreement that I won't destroy his church and he won't destroy mine in the swap. So I'm going to do my best not to make that become a reality, but I, I am very happy to be here with you all. I'm encouraged every year because every year I see new faces. Uh, it's an expression of the, the outward-facing spirit of your community and the ways in which you're trying to be permeable rather than building up the fortress, uh, creating you know the broken dotted line around the borders of the community so that you can make it out into the community and the community can make it into this church. That's that's a great way to grow a community. So I'm encouraged by that, and I hope you are too. Um, before we begin, let me, let me offer a word of prayer, and we'll get started. God, we recognize right now that we need you. We need you to open our eyes so that we can see. We need you to open our ears so that we can hear your voice. Lord, we need you to meet us where we are, in our pains, in our frustrations of life, in our difficulties in work and parenting and friendships and all of the different trials that we face in our lives, we need you. 
We need you to speak to us. We need a word from you that will carry us through the reality we're living in right now. And we'll lift our eyes to your coming again. God, we pray that right now you would increase our faith. And for those of us who are wrestling through issues of faith and the tough questions of life, would you give us a new angle, a new insight into what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to believe in him? God, we pray that you would bless us in this time. Let it be fruitful uh, in more ways than we can even imagine or hope. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few, few years ago, there was a documentary that came out that was entitled Soundtrack for a Revolution. And this, this documentary traces the history, the story of the civil rights movement, but it does it in a very interesting way because what it does is it, it traces the story of the civil rights movement through the music of the civil rights movement. It's really interesting that they would, they would take the songs that were sung by the civil rights activists uh, the spirituals, the hymns, and the songs that they would sing. And it really was a soundtrack to the movement. They would sing these songs as they were praying for change. They would sing these songs as they were laboring for justice. They would sing the songs as they were marching and doing demonstrations. They would sing the songs in the face of terrorism and even in the face of death. Dr. Martin Luther King himself said that these freedom songs played a strong and vital role in the struggle. These songs, as he put it, uh, they gave the people new courage and a sense of unity. They kept alive a faith and a radiant hope in the future during the most trying hours. Dr. King called these songs the soul of the movement. And what I found particularly compelling about this documentary was that as they worked through the story of the civil rights movement through the music of the civil rights movement, they didn't just show black and white footage of the old civil rights activists singing these songs. They actually had contemporary artists singing these songs in a new rendition. John Legend, The Roots, Angie Stone, they were taking these, these songs from history and they were bringing them into a current day context so that they could be re-engaged for modern day struggles. And in a similar way, Luke the Evangelist has given us a series of freedom songs in the beginning of his gospel. These songs are meant, to be, are meant to be strength and courage as God's people work toward a different kind of revolution. These songs are really the soundtrack for a revolution. In Luke's mind, God's people would sing these songs as they pray for change. God's people would sing these songs as they labor for justice. God's people would sing these songs as they face terrorist threats against their city. And even in the face of death, God's people would sing these freedom songs in order to stabilize their community. It was supposed to be a source of new encouragement to provide a sense of unity in our community. That's what this music was about. It's supposed to be about a living faith and a radiant hope that can carry us through our most trying hours. You and I are invited by Luke the Evangelist to sing these songs as our very own songs. And this morning we come to the first of these freedom songs and it springs from the heart of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And as we work through this text for this morning, we are going to ask a question and answer it. 
Here's the question, y'all. What inspired Mary's song? When you hear this, this passage, this song, whether it was sung or not, it's, it's set off in poetic kind of type. It flows from her heart. It springs from her heart. But what is her inspiration? We're going to see two things. We're just going to focus on two pieces of her inspiration. And we're going to try to own them for ourselves. And those are going to come in two points. What was the inspiration? It was divine consideration and divine liberation. The two things that inspire Mary's song are divine consideration, God's consideration of humanity, and divine liberation, the freedom, the liberty that God works into humanity. So we're going to look at these two points this morning, and let's begin with our first, where we look at divine consideration, all right? So check it out. Mary's song gets at a significant theme that works through the entirety of the story of Scripture. If you are new to the Bible, or you've been around Christianity, but you don't really think you have command of the Bible, I want to suggest to you that you think about the overarching story, just as it's laid out in the liturgy, the four chapters. But one of the themes that works through the entirety of Scripture is a theme that Mary raises if you look at verse 48. Look at what causes Mary to burst into praise. Verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Our passage here says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Better translations put it this way. For he has had regard for the humble estate of his servant. He took notice of the humble estate of his servant. I like the way that the message translates it. God took one good look at me, and look what happened. The first thing that causes Mary's heart to leap is that God noticed her. He noticed her. She was a woman in a man's world, but God noticed her. She was a Jew in a Gentile's world, but God noticed her. She was poor in a rich man's world, but God noticed her. She was oppressed in a tyrant's world, but it didn't matter because God noticed her. That is an important theme that we see developing throughout the whole story of Scripture. God sees, and the implication anytime God sees is that God acts. For example, it's mentioned before the Exodus that God sees his people in their bondage and affliction. And you know the rest of the story. And doesn't this meet us in a place of deep human longing? Doesn't it? The fact that God notices, that God sees, it meets us in a place that we need it most. It scratches an itch of our humanity. Because so much of our time, so much of our mental bandwidth is given to getting noticed. Just so someone will see us. It starts early on. You see it. It's built into our humanity. Babies crying when they have a dirty diaper or they want to eat. Notice me. Then it's the little kids scribbling outside of the lines on their coloring page and building their blocks. Look, mommy, somebody notice me. Then it's the high schooler trying to style and profile so that someone will notice them. And then you go to college and you get out and you get a job and you work hard and you apply your creativity because you want your boss to notice you. And then when you wind up in the social scene, you dress to impress because you want that special somebody to notice you. 
And fellas, if your lady asks you if you notice anything new, you better figure it out quick and say, yes, I do. People dress up in tuxedos and wear ball gowns and eat rubber chicken when someone is officially recognized for something in their life. And isn't one of the most devastating things to face in your life the whole idea of feeling like you're invisible? To feel like people see through you? That they don't notice you? Many people have committed suicide because they feel like they're invisible. People have described the difficulty of aging by describing it as feeling like they're becoming invisible. People with mental or physical disabilities have often described their their feeling of invisibility. And I came across an article where this woman who's an actress, she is She's going to play the role of a homeless person in a film. And so she decides she wants to try and get in a character. And so she becomes, quote, homeless for a day. And this is how she describes her experience. Mind you, one day pretending to be homeless. This is how she describes it. She says, when I passed people, they would intentionally look away. I passed an outdoor patio of a bustling coffee shop with well-dressed, laughing colleagues, young mothers, and laptop-laden college students. Not one look. Each step, I grew more surprised that not one person would look at me with concern, offer me something to eat, or a hot cup of coffee. I longed for connection, but not one person would connect with me in any way. I simply couldn't believe No one would acknowledge me in any way. Surely someone would stop to either say hello, hand me a dollar, or ask if I needed information on local shelters. That didn't happen. How quickly you begin to feel like a non-person, a waste of flesh. It is physically painful. Can it be that no one really cares? If I felt this bad in a few hours... I cannot begin to comprehend days, weeks, and years of this. Some of you know what that feels like. The pain of feeling like you're invisible. But Mary would have us know that God notices. That God has regard for us. And this is an amazingly gracious and humbling truth. When you consider how often God goes unnoticed by us. How often do we fail to have regard for him? In all of our pride, we fail to notice him. In all of our selfishness, we fail to notice him. In all of our greed and callousness, we fail to notice him. But here's the good news, y'all. If you're trying to figure out what this Christian thing is all about, here's the good news. When we were not looking for God... God was looking for us. When we weren't noticing God, God was noticing us. When when we weren't looking at him in all of his glory, he was looking at us in all of our misery. That's the good news of the gospel. There was nothing fitting about us. 
It wasn't our credentials, the the number of letters behind our name or the number of zeros and numbers in our bank account. It wasn't any of our credentials or our academic standing. It wasn't how many important people we were rubbing shoulders with. He loved us because of his own goodness and kindness and mercy. He noticed us. That's the good news. And, And throughout the whole story of history, throughout the whole story of Scripture, God takes pains to show us that he notices our human condition. He sees Adam in his sin and clothes him. He sees sees Abraham in his lostness and he finds him. He sees Joseph in prison and he promotes him. He sees his people in slavery and he frees them. He sees Israel in exile and he retrieves them. And in the fullness of time, he sees his son in glory and he sends him. And therein lies all of our hope. We see that, that, that Advent is all of the proof that we need in order to be certain that God sees us, that he notices us. He has looked upon our humble estate by sending his son to live life within the context of our humble estate. God looked on our sickness and sent us a healer. He looked on our affliction and sent us a comforter. He looked on our alienation and sent us a mediator. And if you ever had any doubt that God notices you, that God cares, look at your creator in the cradle. Look at your master in the manger. Look at your king on the cross. Look at your redeemer in his resurrection and know that he sees you. And because he sees you, He acts mercifully toward you. And the whole message of the Christian faith, friends, is that the only thing you need is your nothing. The only thing you need is an empty hand, but that's sometimes the most difficult thing to bring is our nothing. We always want to bring our something. We want to be impressive to God. We want to put God in our debt by how many good deeds we do. But God will not be put in anyone's debt. He loves freely and fully. And sovereignly in the gospel. God can graciously look upon the humble estate of his servants, you and me, because his son was willing to live in the context of our state as a humble servant. That's good news. We're blessed in him. And he has done great things. Do you see we can, we can take Mary's song and sing it for ourselves? He has done great things for me. And this reality becomes ours by faith alone. Faith alone. Advent tells you that you're far worse than you thought you were. But Advent also tells you that God's love is more profound than you could have ever thought it was. You're so bad and I'm so bad that he had to send his son into this broken world. But God's so good that he was glad to send his son into this broken world. That's the good news. That's the good news. Through union with Christ, we can sing Mary's song. But there's another inspirational motif that I want us to look at this morning, and that is divine liberation. Let's, let's check out our second point as we consider divine liberation. We've considered divine consideration. Now let's look at divine liberation. I want you to remember the context in which Mary sang this song. I know that Times are difficult right now. Our news headlines threaten to throw us into despair. 
to make us cynical about anything ever changing. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you're coming from. It doesn't matter whether you're spiritual or not spiritual or something else. All of us know the the weightiness and the heaviness of life these days. It's hard enough without the news headlines. But then you add all of that and we feel the pressure. But I want you to understand that Mary sang her song in some very dark circumstances. Her, her situation was very difficult. It was very oppressive. I want you to remember that the force of Mary's song is communicated not just in the words that she says, but also in the context from which it emerges. In the second century B.C., the Jewish people fought courageously for their freedom and their independence to maintain their own cultural identity and their own religious faith. They were fighting a fierce battle because of the spread of Greek culture called Hellenism. It was sweeping over and, and, and this empire was coming across the globe and everyone was forced to either assimilate or get crushed. And the Jewish people were hanging on by a thread. They were standing firm to fight and they won an incredible victory. Some of our Jewish friends are celebrating that renewal of the temple in, in Hanukkah. This was an amazing period of time for the Jewish people. They had, they had lived in a, in a period of freedom for a short while. But soon that would all come crashing down. You know how much we Americans love our freedoms. We get hype about it here in Washington, D.C. The Americana gets all off the chain, all right? We know how much we love our freedom. And could you imagine some great superpower sweeping into our country and all of the freedoms that we love most being taken away? gone? Could you imagine being oppressed in that way? Could you imagine feeling like you were being squeezed into the conformity of another culture and a completely different outlook on the world? Everything about the life that you loved, gone, disappeared. This is the context in which Mary sang her song because in 63 BC, after a short period of freedom, the Romans come in and they take over the Jewish land. And everyone is forced under heavy taxation. And they are being mocked and ridiculed for their faith and what they believe. And there was a diversity of Jewish response. Should we go to war with the Romans and possibly get crushed? Should we just assimilate, give it all up of our culture, give it all up? Or should we wait for the Messiah to make it right? These were the questions they were asking. And this is what makes the shift in verse 51 so stark. Look at 51. Excuse me. Verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Do you see Mary is speaking in the past tense? She's speaking of future events in the past tense because her hope is so tangible. She is so certain of what God will do that even in the context of oppressive circumstances and disappointments, she's able to speak of God's fulfillment as if it has already happened. And you know what that tells me? 
That tells me that one of the surest points of attack that our enemy comes to get us at is the point of our hope. If he can poke a hole in our hope, he knows that we will devolve into cynicism and bitterness and frustration. We'll never be able to give anyone the benefit of the doubt. We will recede. We will become ingrown without this hope. But I want you to see someone living in in far more oppressive circumstances than most of us, and some of us equal to our oppression. And she is still able to sing this song of hope. And you have to be careful not to spiritualize this text. This text is politically and socially revolutionary. Do you see this? This text is is revolutionary. And we need to keep two things in mind as we read this text, all right? The first thing we need to keep in mind is that the Gospel of Luke is the first book of two-volume series. The book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is connected to to the book of Acts. This is one story that Dr. Luke tells. And here's the way it works, y'all. In his gospel, he's telling us about the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then in the book of Acts, he's showing us how the church is supposed to carry on the ministry of Jesus. That's that's what we see working out. That's that's the revolutionary idea that you and I need to keep in mind. If we are going to call ourselves participants in the ministry of Jesus as his church, then we need to care about these issues, these issues of liberation, these issues of socioeconomic matters for people. It tells us that this is important. This is to be a part of the way that we conceive of discipleship. It's about more than just me and Jesus. And that's the way American Christianity has had a blind spot for a long time. As long as I have my quiet time, I'm good. Me and Jesus are good, so everything's good. And what Luke is saying is that we need to expand our category of discipleship in order to see that we have a role in participating in extending the ministry of Jesus. We like to say it in our American Christianese, being the feet and the hands of Jesus. It includes these kinds of things. Concern for people in the context of oppression. Concern for people who are facing injustices. And the second thing we need to remember is the, the original audience who received this gospel from Luke. It was the church in the first century. And you know what happened? They received this message. They saw this fight for liberty for, for the oppressed. They saw this as a part of their discipleship. And then they became known as the kind of people who were turning the world upside down. That's what their opponents said to them in the book of Acts. These people are turning the whole world upside down. You know why? Because they were countercultural in the way that they dignified those who were on the fringes. They made friendships at the margins. They dignified those who were oppressed. They enfranchised those who were disenfranchised. They had a completely different ethic within the, within the, the church. They were countercultural and they were cross-cultural. And it was those two woven together that made them have such a transformative impact on the world. It wasn't until the coming of Christendom that things began to unravel. And that is a reminder to us when we tend to wring our hands about everything that's going on in the world. Christians sometimes saying, what are we going to do? It's not a Christian nation anymore. Right? 
We need to remember that the church has always been most effective for God's mission when they've been forced into a missionary context. When they've not been in power. When the church hasn't been on power, in power, when the church has been on the fringes of society, that's when it's always had the greatest missional effect. That's, that's an important thing for us to remember. Because then it forces you to actually believe what you're claiming to believe. It's not just a cultural thing where you check your box and you go to church on Sunday morning and you, you know. It actually gives you some standing in the community. No, it's when it costs you your life. When you have a cross to carry that people see the true worth of Jesus. When they see the good news of his kingdom. When his people are willing to risk it all in order to follow him. And with the final mention in this text of God's promise to Abraham, you see that this is one of the ways in which God's blessing is going to go to the nations. Do you see that? And Mary's vision, the coming of Messiah and the anticipation of the Messiah through his church is going to be the way in which God shows off his, how true he has been to his promise to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham. Do you see that? This is a big, massive vision that Mary's singing of here. The blessing goes out to the whole world through God's family. And you and I are invited to participate in that. I know it's easy for us to get hopeless, to give in to the status quo of what we see going on in the world. But we have to process the gospel fearlessly and participate in these spheres in a distinctly Christian way. We've heard it said many times before that we love because God first loved us, but we can't stop there. We battle for justice because we have been justified. We fight for the liberation of the captive because we are the liberated captives. Do you see, this is our story. And the way in which we participate in this story is a direct display of what we see the gospel to be about. This is, this is a profound thing that we see unfolding here. We uphold the dignity of all peoples because God dignified our humanity by taking on flesh and restoring real human beings. That's a beautiful thing. And, and I was thinking about how this could be illustrated. How has this been illustrated well? And I couldn't come up with a better illustration than to think about the Underground Railroad. There were people who were held as slaves in this country, as we all know. But what's mind-boggling to me is that some people who made it out of that slavery, they were willing to put themselves in danger, to put themselves at risk, to enter back into that dangerous context in order to see others set free. They were not content to spiritualize and say, well, I'm glad I'm free and they can just be free in their spirits, right? Nah, no, that don't fly in God's kingdom. Do you see? We're not talking about a Gnostic spirituality where it's all about the things that happen in the ether. Remember, the Savior that we worship to this very day sits at the right hand of the Father as a real human being. To this day, he inhabits the body that has scars. We must care about the physical things of this life. God took one good look at us, and look what happened. What might happen if God's church took one good look 
at the people around us. What God might do through us, we can't imagine. If we began to take notice, it's going to cost us, it's going to stretch us, it's going to fall outside of our neat little categories. But here's the deal. Jesus used this illustration and he talked about this new message of the kingdom as as new wine that doesn't go with the old wineskins. It explodes the old categories that we have. Here's the deal. How do you apply this? Here's how we can begin to apply it. Look at our two points, divine consideration and divine liberation. How do we begin to work this out as God's countercultural community? How do we have a distinctly Christian ethos? The first thing I will say is that for the Christian, there should be no invisible people. Because God took notice of us, we should be the kind of people that take notice of others. Yeah, even those people, whoever those people are for you. We should be the kind of community that is so rich with love that nobody sneaks by unnoticed. There are no unimportant people. I've always loved that C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about the fact that there aren't any ordinary people that you run into. Even the lowliest person, if you were to see them in glory, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship them. It's a beautiful image of how dignified our humanity is. There are no invisible people. And because we recognize that, the second question, the, the second thing, a practical way in which we begin to work this out is, in what ways can we repent for how we have seen through people? How we have looked through people? How we have disengaged from the pains of others. It could be people groups. It could be socioeconomic brackets. It could be neighbors in your building who just annoy you. And your heart has grown hard to them. A a concrete step to begin living as his distinct community is to repent of the ways in which we have failed to live this out. Another thing that we can do as we are taking notice of people is we can ply our hands to the real oppressive circumstances of people. Yeah, there is spiritual oppression, and we take notice of that, and we want to engage that because that is really important to engage according to Scripture. But there are other oppressions in which people are existing, and we ought to take notice of that and participate in whatever ways we can in order to see them get relief. I'm talking about the kind of work that organizations like IJM do that actually free people from modern-day slaveries. I'm talking about the nonprofits in our cities who are trying to free people from cycles of oppression, not just to give poor people a handout, but to disciple poor people out of the condition that keeps them in bondage. We should be the kind of people who cannot rest content with our own freedom while we see other people in oppression. There should be a holy discontent that turns into holy action for God's community. Who knows? Maybe the next leg of growth for Meridian Hill, maybe the next leg of our growth as a community here at Meridian Hill will come as we begin to labor to see captives set free. Maybe it'll come from looking around Columbia Heights and seeing a particular group of people that is in need of justice and then jumping in all hands on deck And they begin to get a taste of gospel love and say, I want more of that. You know, the church is just the appetizer, right? We're just the appetizer of that kingdom that is to come. It's like going through the mall. 
You go through the food court and you walk past that one store and you know your man's just sitting there holding that and you grab that toothpick and you get the appetizer and it stops you in your tracks. You're supposed to want to get the real thing. That's the way the church is supposed to work. When people get a taste of our love, they're supposed to say, ooh, I want the, I want the real thing. Right? When they get a taste of the peace that exists in the way we love one another, they're supposed to lean into that. Do you see? All of the glories of the kingdom that is to come in full measure are to be on display in our midst. These are the things that we can bring into the engine room, right? To pray them into reality here in this local church. To take up Mary's song as a community and to invite others to sing this song by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way in which this story can be really owned is through Christ. There's no liberty like the liberty he gives. There's no freedom like his. Let's join Mary's freedom song, revolting against the effects of the curse in this world, anticipating the fullness of his kingdom to come. God has noticed us. Let's notice one another and let's notice our neighbors. God has set us free by faith in Christ. Let's participate in the liberation of any oppressed people that we see starting in our local context for God's glory and for our glad participation in his work. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. We thank you this morning that you noticed us in all of our despair, in our brokenness, in our hopelessness. You came, you entered in, and it is an astounding thing. It's an astonishing reality that a God so great as you would look upon us with such love. Such love that would, that would fill the oceans and more. You pour that over us. And you set us free. And God, we want to live as your freed people, giving our mental bandwidth and our hearts love to seeing others set free. Whether that's our, our neighbor who lives in our apartment building or that friend down the street or the coworker, God, you are in the process of teaching us what it looks like to love like you love. You hitched your whole reputation to the way in which we love one another and the way in which we love the world. So God, help us. We know that on our own, we are selfish. We are stingy. And even when we do good things, we do them for our own glory. But God, by your help, we can begin to love and serve outside of ourselves because of the ways in which you have selflessly loved us. Let us remember the beauty of the message that we have in this Advent story. That when we couldn't get up to you, you came down to us. And our Our whole lives rest upon that that good grace and gospel truth. So God, help us to believe. And where we are finding it difficult to believe, help our unbelief. God, I pray for my friends in here who are wrestling through these, these claims of the Christian faith. I pray that they would see a peculiar beauty in this story. And they would open up their hearts to think about it in a fresh way after this. Maybe even receive Jesus as the one who can set them free. But God, we pray for all of us that you would mature us in this vision of what it looks like to live as your beloved community. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.